Good morning, everybody. I, uh, I gotta say, I, uh, I'm about two weeks out from a cold, and my voice was a little sore this morning, and so I told myself, logically, I should refrain from singing as much as possible to save my voice for this, but then the worship team just went and did such a great job that I, uh, I couldn't help but, uh, but sing. So if I lose my voice halfway through this, you know who to blame. <laughs> I, uh, the sermon I'm going to preach this morning, uh, I've been uh, mulling over for a few months now. I got this sermon about three months ago. And uh, when I say I got it, what typically happens when I preach is at some point in, in my study, whether it's the week before I preach a message and I know the passage I'm going to preach, or sometimes it's just reading through a, a scripture and, um, and God just spotlights something and it kind of, in a moment I get not every word, but the direction, the vision, the, the, the heart of, of whatever that sermon is. Uh, and it happens very quickly. And uh, many a, uh, well, especially in my younger years, many a Saturday afternoon I've been locked in my office for hours on end and uh, all of a sudden, my wife will be in the other room, and she'll hear me yell out, I got it, which means I, I, know, I know where we're going. I've, got, I've, I've maybe done all the study, and I've got the background, but I'm still not sure exactly where we're going. Uh, but this one, I got this message three, about three months ago, I think, and uh, I was just reading through this passage, and I got the idea in my head of, of where to go with this message and kind of what the application was and and uh, very strongly felt the Lord saying, this is the first sermon you'll preach in Loudoun. And it wasn't a confirmation that I was coming here. It wasn't, uh, okay, that's, that's the church. It was uh, because at the time I still had um, a few different places I was interviewing and we had no idea where we were going. But it was, uh, if you go to Loudoun, this is the first message you're going to preach. This isn't going to be your first message at any other church if you go to any other church. But if you go to Loudoun... This is it. And uh, I thought that would be, uh, well, if I end up in Loudoun, it'll be the, you know, the installation Sunday morning service. That's what I believed. And then I was preparing for today, and I talked to, to John and asked him what, his, you know, what, what he was going to be preaching before and after this to see if I could fit into that. And um, I was struggling with what, what to preach. And again, very clearly heard the Lord say, I already told you what your first message is in Loudoun. You, you thought you knew which Sunday I meant, but just do that one. Uh, so this is something that I've been, uh, I've been mulling over and, and praying over for quite a while, and I'm excited to share it with you this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19. We're going to begin in verse 11, if you'd like to follow along. And as they heard, oh wait, I still hear pages turning. I'll take a, I'll take a drink while you guys finish flipping. Yeah, I'm taking a drink. Thanks for the commentary, Caleb. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. 
Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Which is a nice happy ending to our reading. So anytime we look at any biblical passage, the first thing that that I like to look for, that I, I teach that we should look for is this, that every biblical passage answers a question. Every biblical passage addresses something that we encounter in our lives, whether personally or corporately as the body of Christ, as the kingdom of God on earth. There's always a question that is answered. There's always a need that is addressed. Now, in a lot of circumstances, it's important for us to remember that because the question isn't obvious. And we need to look carefully at the context of the passage to figure out what it is that Jesus is addressing. Because if you don't know what the question is, it's really easy to misapply the answer, right? Um, And uh, if I had more time, or if we were talking more about Bible study, I'd give lots of examples of that, uh, which is a lot of fun, but we won't do it today. We're lucky here, though, because we are given the question at the beginning of the passage, right? Uh, This parable begins with Luke giving us a little author's note, right, that explains why Jesus said this, why he gave this parable. And he says this, uh, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, So Luke tells us why this parable is here. Jesus, remember this is his his final trip to Jerusalem where we know in hindsight he will be welcomed in on Palm Sunday. He will then be rejected, crucified, and everything that happens during Passion Week. But 
The people of Israel knew that the Messiah would ascend to his kingship in the city of Jerusalem. That was the location where that would take place. And so as Jesus, for for three years now, has been traveling and preaching and doing powerful miracles and drawing people to himself, everyone believed that he was going to Jerusalem to do something big, which was true. They believed that he was going to Jerusalem to do what needed to be done to redeem Israel, which was true. They believed he was going to Jerusalem to draw an army to himself, to empower that army with the power of God to overthrow, in a military sense, the Roman occupation of Jerusalem and the rest of Israel, which was false. They also believed a a few other things, which we'll get into a little bit later. And so Jesus coming up to Jerusalem. Now, this passage takes place in Jericho. If you have any maps in the back of your Bible, you can flip to those. Uh, This is the, uh, the, the new city of Jericho that was rebuilt. This isn't the same Jericho from... Uh, from the Old Testament. It's a few miles north. Um, But if you look at the map, Jericho is very close to Jerusalem. Uh, We also need to understand that this passage, this parable is given in the house of Zacchaeus, right? And so for the first half of this chapter, we have the story of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus's redemption, and then that continues straight into this. So we're in the home of Zacchaeus, Jerusalem was the last city on the road to Jerusalem. This is Jesus' final stop before he gets into the city. And so he looks around, and both because it was very obvious to anyone and also because of Jesus' insight, he knows what they're thinking, he knows what they're looking for, and he knows that they are expecting him to come as a king in all the wrong ways. They're correct that he's the Messiah. They're correct that he's about to do something big in Jerusalem. They're correct in understating even how much the next week is going to radically impact the course of all of the rest of humanity, but they're wrong about all the details. And so he tells this passage, or he, gives, he tells this parable in this passage to begin to reshape their understanding of who he was and what he was there to do. Now, there's a couple things that he does in this passage. We're going to do our best to only focus on one of them. But that's the purpose of this parable, is to reshape the Jews' understanding of who the Messiah was meant to be. And as such, it also serves to shape our understanding of who the Messiah is meant to be. To be. Because even with 2,000 years of church history and the hindsight and our understanding of Passion Week, it is easy for us to sometimes fall into some of the same traps as the Israelites. Now, you might notice as we read this story, there's actually two narratives going on, right? I don't know if you have any English teachers or anyone who is into literature. But maybe some of you noticed that we kind of have two stories happening, right? Two completely different groups of people that, within the story that really have no interaction with one another. 
As a preacher, I read this story and I think, wow, that was a bit of a scattered message there, Jesus, right? They teach us in seminary these days to try and make all of your sermons have one main point, one main focus, one main goal, because it's much easier for people to remember one thing. And frankly, we don't often have time to to work on three different things in our lives throughout the week, right? So I look at this and say, ah, Jesus, I would have gotten marked off for this in, in, uh, in preaching class because you're doing two completely different things. Now, the reason for that is not because Jesus needs to take preaching lessons from me. That was a little bit of a joke. You'll, you'll, get, you'll get used to that over time. Not, it wasn't because it was a mistake. It's that Jesus gives us two messages for two very different groups of people. And the story, and the part of our story that involves the, the man going, the, the nobleman going off and the delegation following after that didn't want him to rule over them, uh, and then he comes back and there's that conflict, that secondary story, that is written for a specific group of people. It's written for the group of people that rejected Jesus. Now, there's a great message there. It involves Archelaus who was the son of Herod, uh, and it's a really interesting tie-in, and we're not going to talk about it, but you can ask me about it later, and I'd be happy to explain it. That's a separate story, and for the most part, not the one that is most applicable to us this morning, because that part of the story is directed to those who reject Jesus and the message he has for them. We're today going to look at the other side of the story, which is for those who accept his messiahship, who accept his kingship, so that we can understand what that looks like and what role we play in it. So that's what we're going to dive into today. You may have noticed that this parable sounds awfully familiar. And that's because there's a very similar parable in Matthew chapter 25. Anybody know what parable I'm talking about? You can say it out loud. Right, it's the parable of the... Thank you, honey. My wife answered my question. I appreciate it. I know, I heard you, I heard you all. The parable of the talents. It's a very similar story. Uh, the differences are that it, it occurs in Matthew chapter 25. It occurs after Jesus gets into Jerusalem. And if you put the two side by side, there's a number of things that are different about it. Um, now, if you read what scholars write, there's, there's a, a few different reasons why people think the stories are different. Uh, my assumption is that Jesus just told this similar parable multiple times and tweaked the details based on the people that he was speaking to and the purpose of telling it, right? Uh, And so what that that understanding gives us is, okay, the, the differences here, the things that are different and unique to Luke's account of this story serve to make the point that Jesus is trying to make. It, 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 it supports the sermon that he's giving, which again is to shape our idea of who the Messiah is. One of the, the biggest details is the, the monetary value that's given, right? Um, anybody have any minas in your pockets this morning? No? Probably not, and especially you wouldn't because it's not actually a tangible thing. That was a trick question. Uh, it's a, it, it was a, a unit of weight. 
So it's essentially what he's saying here is that he had 10 pounds of silver coins, right? And so that's how they would measure larger amounts of money is by weight. And they would have scales and you would just pile the silver coins on this side against a counterweight. And, and that's how you would come up with a sum of money. So what we have here, 10 minus one mina was equal to about three months wages, okay? That, that was the value uh, in, in their culture of one. So, so each one of these men gets about three months wages. So if we want to throw numbers on it for something that adds up and multiplies easy, we'll say $15,000, okay? Comparatively, in the parable of the talents, one talent was equal to 60 minus. So the amount of money that we're talking about here is very, very small, right? Now, obviously, I think everyone in this room would agree that $15,000 isn't exactly a small sum of money, right? If you dropped that on your way out to the car after church this morning and you got home, you wouldn't say, ah, I'll just leave it for somebody else to pick up, right? You'd circle it and very quickly drive back, calling the church the whole way. Uh, It's not an insignificant amount of money, but compared to the parable of the talents, it was a fairly small amount. It was a modest amount of money, uh, especially as we're talking in the realm of noblemen and kings. For a king, three months' wages of a laborer is not a lot of money. And that's very important for the rest of the parable, that compared to Matthew and his account of the story, it's a very small amount of money. So here's what we have in the story, at least the, the characters that we're going to focus on. He brings 10 of his servants. Each of them gets one. And he says, I'm going away to receive a kingdom. And when I come back, I want to see what you're able to do with this money. There's no indication in the parable that he gives them uh, any, any hope of reward. It's just this is, their, this is your job. This is what I'm asking you to do. He doesn't tell them if you do well, you're going to get this. There's no guarantees. He just calls and invites them to work in this position. So he goes away, and the three examples that we are given are one man who earns from one and makes it ten, one who makes one into five, and one who hides his in a handkerchief, right? Basically buries it in the ground and does nothing. We're not going to talk about the, that servant today, the servant that did nothing, um, I, before I wrote this, I wrote a sermon on the parable of the talents, and in that sermon we talk more about the servant who did nothing with the money. We're going to talk today about the other servants. So here's what we have. We have these two servants. These are the characters we're going to focus in on today. Each one of them is given one pound of silver coins and told to invest it and make as much as they can with it. One returns a 500% profit, one a thousand, which is a very good profit, right? If we have anybody in here who's an an investor that regularly sees that sort of return, please introduce yourself to me because I'm going to start investing, right? Right? That's difficult to do. Now, it was To be fair, it was easier in their time, right? If you were one of the rare people that had money, 
Uh, it was easy to invest at a very high rate of interest. A lot of people made a lot of money. Uh, there was more money in banking than, than there is now. But regardless, in any century, those are impressive results. So, so this ruler comes back. He has now received a kingship, and he goes to his servants. He went away a rich man. He came back a powerful man, this nobleman, right? And obviously we know there's a difference between those two things. And he who gave to these servants out of his wealth comes back and returns to them and gives to them again out of his power. And so we have this one man who, who, who makes 10 pounds of silver. He's given authority over 10 cities and then the man who makes five over five. But here's what I want you to think about. And this is what's so interesting about this passage. This servant with the 10 minus at the end of this period of time, right? He started with, we said, we'll make up a number of $15,000. And he increased it tenfold. So now he has $150,000. He started managing 15000 Now he's managing $150,000 in this investment account. Now, that is a good upgrade. That's a substantial upgrade, right? Being responsible for $150,000 worth of resources is much more significant than $15,000. But then think about, right? Think about the gross domestic product of a city, right? Um, If you're not a business person, gross domestic product is just how much money is created in in an area by all of the goods and services and things like that. Think about how much money, how much resource is involved in a single city, right? Think about the city of Concord and think about how far $150,000 goes in the annual budget of the city of Concord, right? Not very far. That's like three potholes, And Concord's not a huge city by any means, right? I mean, we're from Vermont, so for us, it's a really big city. Like, there's, there's like three Walmarts here. I was really serious about that, <laughs> right? But it's not even a huge city. But you, you, I mean, you take one of the schools in Concord, and $150,000 is salary and a half, right? It's just, it's nothing, So you look at this servant that he started with very little, respectively, he grew it a little bit, and then he's given authority over so much. The gap between even what he created and what he was given authority over is enormous. It's huge. So then what does that tell us about the kingdom? Right? Because that's the purpose of this parable is for Jesus to tell us and shape our understanding of what the coming kingdom is. Now, the first thing he tells us, right, is the story about the nobleman going away to receive the kingship, which we now know is Jesus, the, the primary understanding of that is Jesus going away, the ascension, and then the return at the second coming, right? But like anything that we learn about God in the Bible, there is a... a, a a to-come understanding and a now. So this is both about the second coming, but it also describes the relationship that we have with God now. 
But, but the first thing it tells us is that he is going away. The second thing it tells us, which again, I, I think that we've gotten this part, right? I think we all understand that Jesus left and he hasn't come back yet. The second part is, well, then what is our role in that kingdom? And that was a revolutionary concept for the Israelites as well, because for them, Jesus was supposed to go up into Jerusalem and do all the hard work, right? And they were going to just do whatever he said, and he had the power, and he had the ideas, and he had the plan, and they were just going to follow him into victory. And so he confronts that, first of all, by saying, it's not going to happen all at once. I'm going away for a little while. And then they say, well, wait a minute. If you're going away, who's going to do the work while you're gone? And he says, you are. You realize that that is an, an invitation into the work of kingdom building. That is an invitation into who he is and the work that he's doing. That we are not just idle followers that just start swinging swords when he gives us the order, but we are invited to bring our gifts and our talents and our obedience into the building of that kingdom. And so what does that role look like when we think about this servant who started here, grew it to this, and then was given this enormous, over and above blessing. Because business-wise, this doesn't quite make sense, right? Now, if you didn't read my resume, which most of you probably didn't, I do have a degree in business. So when I was in school, I studied business marketing uh, and management, and I have a bachelor's degree in that before I went back and got a master's degree in ministry. Uh, so, so I... I understand business. I think in business terms uh, a good portion of the time. But this is, like the parable is business, right? This isn't just making something spiritual businessy. That's what the parable is. It's about a businessman, and it says he set them forth to do business. And from a business perspective, that's not quite how you do it, right? You give a little, you see how they do with it, and then you give a little more, and you reduce the risk, right? You reduce your risk as an overseer by letting people march up the ladder. You give them a little more and a little bit more and a little bit more and they earn their way up to the top, but that's not what we see here. They're faithful in a little and then he gives them an unbelievable responsibility. It's a huge, it's a huge upgrade in what they've been given a stewardship of. And so what we have to understand then is that that's how God interacts with us, that as we are invited into participation in the building of his kingdom, he looks to give us opportunities to be faithful and then give us abundant opportunities to have a stewardship of even more. Now, this can show up a couple different ways. Uh, some of the applications, like pretty much any sermon, right, some of these will be personal, and some of them will be corporate. Some are, what do I do as an individual, or what do we do as a family? Some are, what do we do as a church? Now, let me give you an example of what this looks like personally. Biblically, here's a great example of this, the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter was a fisherman, right? And he was involved in some way in running this business. 
A little bit later in life, the apostle Peter gets married. We know that because Jesus heals his mother-in-law. So Peter went from having some degree of stewardship over a business to having the stewardship of a family and a wife and a mother-in-law guaranteed that are mentioned, and we assume probably children and, and other things as well. He was given that stewardship. He must have done something right in that as well because Jesus calls him as a disciple, right? I'm going to pause for just a second because God doesn't always just give us what we deserve, right? I want to make sure we're not confusing two things. I want to make sure I'm not bringing confusion here, right? We don't earn grace. But what we're talking about today is stewardship and stewardship of the responsibilities we've been given. We don't earn grace. Stewardship. Then Peter becomes the disciple. He goes from being in charge of a family and having a stewardship of, of a wife and probably kids, which is a huge responsibility, right? I have a huge responsibility to my family to care for them, to lead them, to guide them. That's a big responsibility. But then he gets upgraded, and he is one of 12 disciples that are following the Messiah around that will eventually do the work of building his church in the world. That's another big upgrade. And then even above that, Peter becomes the preeminent disciple, and he is the head of that entire church. And so we see within his, within his life these huge jumps in the stewardship that he has given, right? He goes from being on a fishing boat to writing scripture. Can you just picture that for a moment as, as a first century Israelite that's grown up reading the law of Moses and the reverence that they had for the word of God and for scripture, that Peter would go from being a, a dirty, smelly fisherman to writing scripture? Personal. So maybe there are areas in your life you feel God has called you to a certain ministry. And it doesn't have to be, up, I'm not talking up here ministry, I'm talking about being in your work ministry, right? How you conduct yourself at the grocery store ministry, how you raise your kids ministry, how you teach, what, whatever God has called you to. Is there a time where God is ready to expand your responsibility. More importantly for us this morning, what does this mean for us as a church? And I think Peter was a great example of what this looks like on a personal level. If I want a good example of what this looks like on a corporate level, I look here, right? Is this church started? In downtown Concord, I believe. If any of these details are wrong, it's either John's fault or my fault for listening poorly. <laughs> this church started in Concord. At one point, it was 20 people or so. And grew from there to about 200. And I believe a, there was a pretty short period of time where that happened, relatively, right? And then those 200 people came over here to Loudoun and built this 
tremendous facility. My wife and I were here in, seven years ago and we saw it and we thought, this is just such an a, a, a amazing ministry space. So much potential here. Right? And then you didn't even stop there, right? Because then, and uh, I think it was 2007, began what would two years ago be recognized as a Nazarene compassionate ministry that has incredible outreach into your community and does all these different things. Right? Now here's the problem. Because there's always a problem, right? Because we're people. There are times in our Christian walks where we need to avoid sin, we need to avoid doing the wrong things. Perhaps we focus too much on those times. But regardless, sometimes the things we need to look at are not avoiding the bad things, but pursuing the right things good things. And there's a lot of times where God is ready to take us here. But we're comfortable here. Now, I'm not quite ready to say that this is sin. I'm not quite ready to say that it's wrong. Because continuing to do what we're doing here is different than the guy who buries it in a handkerchief, right? Those are different things. And this is something that, that I explore a lot more in the, in the parable of the talents, that, you know, how we approach that stewardship. So if we are at this level, right, if we are the, we got the one, we made it 10, right, we're here, we've been, we've been faithful, if we choose to stay here, I'm slow to condemn that. And there's a lot of churches that are here. But what I sense, and this is where my heart is, what I sense is this is a church that's ready for this. Because we get into this place where we we get to the 10. Or maybe we get to the 10 and then God gives us the city. And then we feel like we're done. But I don't think he's ever done. I don't think he's ever out of ideas. We're certainly not running out of broken people. Is, I, don't, I don't think there's a shortage of, of broken people in Concord, New Hampshire, right? He's got a plan for him. So if we're willing to let yesterday's city, whether that's 200 people, new building, outreach ministry, fill in the blank, if we're willing to let yesterday's city become today's minus, What do we have to look forward to? Now, change is hard, right? Change is really difficult. Even good change, I mean, bad change is, is really, really hard, but, but even good change is uncomfortable, right? Those guys, that guy that got 10 cities, 
he's got to travel a whole lot more than he used to, right? He, he probably was in one place for a very long time serving this made-up master, right? And now all of a sudden he's in charge of 10 cities that I'm sure he will be expected to visit and understand and be present in. His life is going to radically change with that upgrade in stewardship. And I've met a lot of churches. I've met a lot of people that aren't ready for that. And I'm not, I'm not here judging that, okay? Like I said, I, I think that this is as far as I can go. It's very different than I put it in a cloth and I buried it. I didn't even protect it. I didn't, those are two very different things. But this is what I'm, you know, for me, this is what I am looking for. I'm not, I'm not content to just keep doing the same things. And there's so much hope in this church. There's so much hope in this. And I've seen incredible stewardship here. And I know that the last few years have been tough. And I know the last few years have been tough for everybody everywhere, but I, I've, I've heard your stories. I know, I know it's been a hard season. But I want you to hear that that doesn't say anything about your stewardship. That doesn't mean that you weren't faithful. It doesn't mean that you weren't careful. It doesn't mean that you weren't dedicated. His priorities are a lot bigger and different than our priorities. So in your personal lives, your lives together as a church, it's a no-pressure proposition, right? There's no punishment offered if they don't accept the cities. No punishment promised, nothing harsh said about them. But it is an invitation that God wants to do incredible things through you in your families, in your workplaces, in your grocery shopping, in your Starbucks runs, and in your church. We've had the opportunity to meet a incredible amount of amazing people in a very short period of time over the last 24 hours. And uh, Rachel and I absolutely loved our time with you last night, getting to hear just a few of your stories and a little bit about your lives. I believe that there's incredible opportunity ahead for this church, regardless of what role I play in it. Regardless of what role I play in it, I want you to hear this morning that God is ready to take you new places, to do new things, to give us things that we couldn't even imagine, let alone feel worthy of. I was uh, reminded of this phrase on the way in this morning, but... uh if you never get out of the boat, you never get to walk on water. Sometimes you just have to take that step, even though it may feel uncertain. 
Miracles don't happen when there isn't a need. That's another way to say it. God doesn't provide miracles in our lives or anybody's lives if they aren't in desperate need. Find a miracle in the New Testament, right? Where someone wasn't in desperate need of God's healing. Those are scary places to be. It's scary to say, God, put me in a place where miracles can happen because that means we're in a place where there's nothing else. If we're in a place where miracles can happen, that means there's no other options, there's no backup plans. If he doesn't show up, there's nothing left. It's a terrifying place to be. I'll be honest with you. But it's a good place to be. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are so honored, God, that you invite us into a stewardship of your kingdom. <coughs> and we're so used to, uh, we can be so used to 2,000 years of the church talking about this. We're used to growing up with songs and stories, sayings and posters about being your hands and feet, that it just becomes kind of second nature to us. But in the same way that I'm blown away that I would be trusted with just keeping alive four children, let alone raising them up to be godly, good, good people. We are in awe that you give us the stewardship of your kingdom, that you say, take care of it while I'm gone. And we know, of course, Lord, that you are not fully gone and you have sent your spirit, your presence within us to empower us, to give us wisdom and understanding and hope and courage, joy and strength. But when we look back 2,000 years at what they were expecting, when we look at how, they, how disappointed they were when you didn't start a revolt and just get into a little fight in Jerusalem and how much bigger your kingdom and how much bigger your plan was. And then that you invite us to be a part of that. God, I am in awe that you count us worthy. Speaking, speaking at least for myself. So God, for me, let me be faithful in what you've given. Let me prove myself worthy to be given more, not for my glory, not for my honor, not to make myself feel better, but let me be someone who can do more to build your kingdom. May we be faithful for the sake of your kingdom. May we be faithful for the sake of those who are outside these walls. And by extension, who are outside of your grace and your peace and your comfort and your hope. May we be better for them. May we have the courage to stand up and say, God, we're ready for what's next. Whatever it looks like. We know if we're resting in you, if we're following you, it's what's best for us. May we be humble and obedient servants. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who invites us into work with him.
Amen.